Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 22. We'll read about the key of David. That represents Christ's authority to open the door into his future kingdom. After the door is opened, no one can close it. Salvation is assured. And once it's closed, no one can open it. Judgment is certain. Some believe that I will protect you from the great time of testing, as it says here, means there will be a future time of great tribulation from which true believers will be spared. Others interpret this to mean that the church will go through the time of tribulation and that God will keep them strong in the midst of it. Still, others believe this refers to times of great distress in general. The church is suffering through the ages. And we cannot interpret from this verse when or for how long Christians will experience the, quote, great time of testing, end quote. Today, millions of Christians are suffering and dying at the hands of godless tyrants throughout the world. To them, the time of testing has already begun. Whenever Christians suffer, Christ promises protection of their eternal souls. The new Jerusalem is the future dwelling of the people of God. We'll have a new citizenship in God's future kingdom. Everything will be new, pure, and secure. Now, Laodicea was the wealthiest of the seven cities, known for its banking industry, manufacture of wool, and a medical school that produced eye ointment. But the city had always had a problem with its water supply. At one time, an aqueduct was built to bring water to the city from hot springs. But by the time the water reached the city, it was neither hot nor refreshingly cool, only kind of lukewarm and the church had become as bland as the tepid water that came into the city. At the end of each letter to these churches here in Revelation, the believers were urged to listen and understand what was written to them. Although a different message was addressed to each church, all the messages contain warnings and principles for everyone. Jesus knocks at the door of our heart because he wants to save us and have fellowship with us. He is patient and persistent in trying to get through to us not breaking and entering, but knocking. He allows us to decide whether or not to open our life to Him. Do you intentionally keep His life-changing presence and power on the other side of the door? Or do you, with open heart, open the door and let Him in? All right, with that, let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. December 12th, the New Testament, Revelation chapter 3. Verses 7 through 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have 
so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes, so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3. Pride results from overvaluing ourselves above others. It leads to restlessness because it makes us dissatisfied with what we have and concerned about what everyone else is doing. It keeps us always hungering for more attention and adoration. By contrast, humility puts others first and allows us to be content with God's leading in our lives. Such contentment gives us security so that we no longer have to prove ourselves to others. Let humility and trust affect your perspective and give you the strength and freedom to serve God and others. Psalm 131, verses 1 through 3. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. A psalm of David. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself, like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, now and always. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 23 pride ends in humiliation, while humility brings honor. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, Come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 
991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesechanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio and have a blessed day. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope you had a good week. Uh, this is week two of our current series. We titled Rest, Finding Joy and Peace in the Gospel of Jesus. And so last week we spent a little while explaining what we mean by that. So we unpacked that a little bit and, um, and what we're kind of hoping to accomplish in all of this. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go on the website. You can listen to the, uh, the sermon there. Or if you've got a smartphone, you can download the app and listen to it there. But, but all in all, we're taking four weeks to, uh, to follow the major themes of the Bible and, and really look at how that pertains to deep rest in Jesus and who Jesus is. What does it mean to really be found in Jesus Christ, to be found as being a Christian? And what, what does that mean for us, right? So last week, we, uh, we unpacked what we called creation rest, how things were in the beginning, how that correlates to us and to God. Um, so this week, our text is found in Revelation 2, 2 through 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there, or it'll be on the screen. And we're, uh, we're calling this repentant rest. And so we'll explain what that means. But I know Seth just prayed, but would you just pray with me? Would you just bow your heads? Some of you probably aren't Christians, some of you are, and so we're all coming in with different, different sorts of ideas and philosophies and that sort of thing, but if we could, with our eyes closed, man, I, I just, if you're a believer, just begin to ask God to really, to speak to you through the word this morning, um, to convict you of sin, to just encourage you, but, but I just, I'm just asking, my prayer, Lord, is that you'd help us to be alert, to, um, to have clarity, just to be able to focus this morning for the next hour or so, just as we gather together as believers, that, Lord, we'd be encouraged by your word, we would be challenged by your word, we would be um, just exhorted to, to make certain action steps, not to, find, not to find our identity, but, Lord, to just know you more. And so just speak to us, Lord God, we, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Let's go ahead and read this together. Like I said, this is Revelation 2, and we're going to read verses 2 through 5. It says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, and do the work you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So that's the word of the Lord for the day. That's our text for today. But, but I want to I just explain, this was written in a, in a literal historical time to a literal historical church. Um, this is written to the church at Ephesus, which is a city. And we really know more about the Ephesian church than we do really any other church in the New Testament. Um, the Ephesian church is written about constantly. This is where um, the church explodes in Acts 2. You know, people believe in Jesus. Um, signs and wonders are performed. Things are crazy, awesome. Um, the new Christians were meeting daily, baptizing daily. Thousands of people were converted in a single day. And so crazy things were happening in this church. People were coming to know Jesus. People were turning from their sins and, and following Jesus. So it was a great thing. 
And so what I just mentioned in Acts 2, that, that all of that took place around 50 AD. Okay? Now this, this text that we just read in Revelation, same church, but this took place around 96 AD. So 40 some years had passed. And what I want to do is take a minute and dissect um, a couple parts of this passage. Because what we see is, first of all, we see a, a commendation, a congratulatory statement. The next thing we see is we, is we see a rebuke, right? A challenge, a confrontation. And then the next thing we see is a solution, right? Do this. And so first, the commendation. It said, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So hopefully you're picking up on the fact, this is a fantastic response, right? The, uh, this, is a, this is a fantastic response regarding the Ephesian church. They've been enduring. They, they've, you know, their doctrine, their beliefs are good. Um, they, they've refuted the false teachers. They haven't swayed with just the, the popular ideas of the day. They've been patient. They haven't grown weary. They haven't grown tired. They haven't given up. So good things. That's the congratulatory statement. But then it goes into a rebuke. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. So that's interesting, right? Their doctrine's good. They haven't grown tired. They've been combating the false teachers. Um, they've been right in so many ways. And so, and so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? I think, I think the implications for this church are very, very relevant for us today. Because it says they've abandoned their first love. So they've, they've forgotten the most basic aspect of why they're doing what they're doing. They're doing all these things, but they've forgotten why they do them. Lastly, the solution. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, repent, do the work you did at first. And then what is this? Uh, if not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What, what does this mean? It's saying, if you do not do these things, I, Jesus, will remove my favor, will remove my protection, will remove my presence from your church. So do these things. Strong language. Very intentional. And so if, there's going to be three big points today. And the first one, I want to start with this. And, and the idea here is just what is sin? Because if we're going to talk about repentance, repentance means changing from something, uh, you know, to to basically change your trajectory from this way and and start going this way. So repentance doesn't really make sense unless we know what we're repenting from. So let's explain what sin is. Because if you're not a Christian, and many people in our culture today aren't, we we could see that, you know, they might see this text in Revelation and, and their response might be, you know, here we go again, right? Here we go again, another text written to control people and to behaving a certain way. Um, This kind of text leads to death. This kind of text leads to destruction. This kind of thing leads to the breakdown of relationships. So you can keep it. I don't want anything to do with it. That's how a lot of people would respond to this. And rightly so if they don't understand it. But what we saw last week is in the creation account is God creating everything that is. And what did he say? He said, it's good. He created everything and he said it was good. So, so was God wrong? 
how, how is it that there's all this suffering and there's all this death and there's war and there's not peace? And so one thing we mentioned last week was, was the word for peace in the Old Testament is shalom. Which means so much more than just absence of conflict, which, which our English word for peace kind of translates. Shalom means absolute Total flourishing. Everything. Everything God says is in this, this shalom, this absolute flourishing upon creation. So what happened? Right? What happened? What changed? Because life for us isn't marked by this shalom. Life for us is marked by degeneration, breakdown, death, suicide, depression. Not shalom. Not peace. And what the Bible teaches is that what happened is, is sin happened. And so Matt Chandler um, says this. He, said, he says that when sin entered us, it entered the world. Sin has effects beyond humanity. It affects the world, the cosmos. This is not just to remind us of the seriousness of rebellion against God, but to indicate that human rebellion against God disrupts the natural order of everything. This is why the whole gospel must be explicitly about the restoration of God's image bearers, us, and also about the restoration of the entire theater of his glory, the entire cosmos. So where is this in the Bible? Genesis 3 gives an account of this. And so what I want to do is just take a snippet of what, of what this sin stuff, really what that resulted or what that caused for us. And so Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says this, and I'm, I'm going to read from the message on this particular text. This is God to Adam. He told the man, because you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, don't eat from this tree. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food, getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies is for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way. Planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk until you return to that ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out as dirt and you'll end up as dirt. Wonderfully encouraging text, right? Um, R.C. Sproul, I quote him a lot, one of my favorite theologians. He says that sin is cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. The shalom, the flourishing, the completeness, the relationship, the depth of the toilessness, the ease that they would have, have experienced pre-sin is now gone. It's gone. Why? Because instead of starting with, instead of our beginning point, instead of centering on and, and our life revolving around and submitting to God, honoring creator God, man decided to be his own God. And if God did create all of this, right? If there is a creator, if it is God, it makes sense, doesn't it? That how he wired everything to work would be the right way. Why? Because he made it. But when we went against that, everything fractured. Everything fractured. And so what happens is we take the stuff that God created and we worship it instead of the creator. We worship created things instead of the creator God. 
So another thing I think we need to throw in here if we're gonna if we're gonna evangelize well, and there's a lot there's gonna be a lot in this this talk. It might come off more of a lecture, but I think I think we need to navigate ourselves through this well. Another thing uh, that we're gonna that we need to know if we're gonna evangelize well is when we talk about sin, we need to explain what we're saying. We shouldn't assume that people understand what we're talking about. A hundred years ago, you know, when we talked about sin, uh, in general, there was a much higher percentage of people that had a biblical worldview. There was a much higher percentage of people that might have been nominal Christians. Their lives looked more Christian. So when you said sin, people generally would understand what you meant. Nowadays, this isn't the case. This isn't the case. So some philosophy that was becoming quite popular in the mid-20th century, back in the 50s and 60s, was this idea of postmodernism. And so what's that, right? Well, let me, let me try to make this simple for you. Postmodernism, or sorry, postmodernists believe essentially that truth is relative. They believe that there's no truth, and therefore no one can tell someone else what they ought to believe because what's true for them might not be true for the other person. So I, I'm, assuming, I'm hoping, you probably heard this sort of thing, right? If, if it hasn't been explicitly, you've heard it, because it's very popular nowadays. I would go as far to say it's, it's actually pretty normal, especially in educated urban places and cities. People just believe this. And so for a class I took last week, um, prior to the class, what I had to do was I had to have conversations with people I didn't know, and I had to talk to them about God. And so I went to OSU campus and I just walked around and I, I just asked a few people if I could, you know, ask them some questions. And so I talked briefly um, with three different individuals and none of them had a biblical worldview, not even remotely, not even close. And so um, the last girl, I think her name was Jen, I asked her what she thought about heaven. I just, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about heaven? And, and she said she believed in it. She's like, well, I believe there's heaven. And, and, and I said, well, how do you think people get there? And she just kind of looked at me for a second. I, I feel like she probably just hadn't thought about or wrestled with that much. And, and then I, 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 I kind of pressed her a little more. I said, how is it that some people make it in and other people don't? Just seems like a pretty valid question. And, and she said something to the effects of, she got a little bit agitated. Like I could tell that that's not, that was against her worldview. And she said, she said, I don't think that people should be telling other people what to think or believe. And so this is the idea of truth being relative. So this is gaining a lot of traction because it's appealing to people. At all, out of all three people, every one of them said something to this effect. So, when you tell people that the Bible says this or the Bible says that, often what you'll find is just a confused stare. And a response like, yeah, but nobody really knows what the author meant. Language is weak. How can we rely on, a, on an ancient book, etc., etc.? These are the types of things that we're hearing a lot more when we talk about sin in particular. So if you simply, if your narrative that you're explaining to people is simply God and then sin and then Jesus, it's not going to translate to most folks anymore. You're probably going to have to spend three quarters of your time explaining God and sin, a lot on sin, if for Jesus to even make sense. Because, because you saying that Jesus is your savior to someone who doesn't think they need a savior isn't going to be effective for the most part, right? 
So again, this kind of relativistic thinking, there is no truth. It's irrational. It's not ra- It's irrational at its core uh, because no one truly believes this in practice. No one believes that. Um, the moment someone says this is the moment they contradict themselves. Um, I'll, so let me give an example. I had another conversation with a guy who said something, it was a while back, um, a few months ago, so it was something to the effects of, yeah, I think all religions are the same. Um, I think there's no such thing as morality or ethics. I think it's culturally constructed. Does that make sense? His, his thinking was, I think good and bad, they're just, they're, they're culturally constructed. There is no um, absolute truth that exists. And so I asked him this. I said, I said so what do you live for? Uh, what's the point of existing? And his answer was, I think people need to be compassionate and promote peace. Now, let me unpack why that makes no sense. I, you just said that truth is relative. If you believe that truth is relative and in turn there is no truth, then why stand for compassion or peace? You couldn't because peace for you would be different than peace for someone else. Are you tracking with me? Everyone believes in some aspect of right and wrong. But this kind of thinking has gained a lot of steam. A lot of people believe this, but they haven't gone far enough to see the contradictions. It just allows them to stay within their agnostic skepticism. And most people don't call themselves agnostic, but a lot of their beliefs are very agnostic. I just don't know. You know, don't tell me what to believe, right? For most people, truth is whatever works for them. So it's ridiculous. (laughs) Every culture in all of history would agree that rape and murder and pedophilia and stealing and cheating are less than ideal and most often would condemn them. So the point here is that none of us are truly relativists. None of us. Second big point. Everything's broken. Everything's broken. Religion isn't the problem. Politics aren't the problem. Social evolution isn't the answer. Social conditioning isn't the answer. We're sinners and we're in need. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what, that's what we're exhorting. That's what we're, we're saying here today. We're in need of something that's beyond ourselves. We're in need of Jesus. And so some of the big questions, right, that you hear, why is there injustice? Why is there pain and suffering? Why is there so much loss? Why can't these different people groups get along? And I think, I think across the board, most, or if not all of us would agree that there's something wrong. We just, we just disagree on what the answers are and what the core problems are. And the Bible teaches that the problem is inside of us. The problem is sin. Remember Genesis 3, 17 through 19, the very ground is cursed because of you. I want this to sink in. Getting food from the ground will be as painful as having babies as for your wife. This is to the man. This is to Adam. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling, harvesting, sweating in the fields from dawn to dusk until you return to that ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out as dirt, you'll end up as dirt. Sin has ruptured shalom. Sin has marred our purity as image bearers of God. Instead of work being something that's fruitful, instead of work being something that's creative, it's often agonizing. 
picture this. God tells Adam, the ground will be as painful you, for you as, 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 it's, as it, the same pain as it is for your wife to bear a child. I don't think we've noticed this as often as we should or thought about it. Think about that. The ground will sprout, will sprout thorns and weeds. And so the big idea here is I don't think we truly understand the, fully the devastating effects of sin in our world. And again, you'll hear people come up with remedies. Oh, if we could simply elect this certain politician, if we could just uh, pass this certain policy, you know, if, if we could just get along, if we could create a society where we affirm everyone, if we could educate better, if we could stop this barbaric religious stuff and understand that everyone's right, if we could create more jobs, if somehow we could generate more revenue, and on and on and on and on and on but it never works. Some of these things are are good ideas. You know, there's a few. We should work to alleviate poverty. We should work to help those in need. But ultimately, the deep problem, the deep issue, the answers are bigger than that. Because the real problem is inside of us. The real problem is a sin problem and everything is broken as a result of sin. Relational breakdown societal breakdown, family breakdown, psychological breakdown, sexual breakdown, gender confusion, economic toil. We're a mess. We're a mess. And real quick, before we move to our next point, um, Tim Keller, in a lecture he gave on evangelizing in a postmodern world, he said that we need to work hard, very hard, especially as Christians, hear this, we need to work very hard to define, well-define the terms that we use. And I know I alluded to this earlier, but if we're talking to people without a biblical worldview or a, or a pseudo-religiousness, we'll start talking about God, we'll start talking about sin, we'll start talking about the Bible, and these people will absolutely misunderstand us. If in our gospel presentation to people, we just go through, well, Jesus is God and Jesus died for our sins and everyone who believes in him goes to heaven. If we don't lay in the groundwork of asking questions and making sure the person that you're talking to understands the terms that you're using, they will completely misunderstand you. And really deep down, this is just a form of religious legalism. And so what we need to do is slow down. Because I said this, but I want this to sink sink in. Most people believe that truth is whatever works for them. Does that make sense? Truth is whatever works for me, however I feel in the moment. And so have you heard this before? And this is on the screen, but you've probably heard this. If If it's true for you, then it's true for you. But if it's true for me, then it's true for me. And what's true for me might not be true for you. Many people believe this. Many. And so Keller teaches that if someone believes in this kind of thinking and you tell them Christ is the truth, then they'll read, they'll read that through their own worldview. And so what that, what that says to them, if you, don't, if, you don't do, if you don't lay in the groundwork, you don't answer their questions, then you'll tell them that Christ is the truth and what that meant to them is that this will work for me and whenever you know, Christ stops working for me, whenever being a Christian becomes really, really hard, I'm bailing. 
The moment that, you know, the sexual partner comes around that I want to, you know, that I want to engage with, I'm gone. Whenever, whenever, you know, I can cheat on my taxes, I'm going to do that. And so the moment that it becomes hard, the moment when it stops working for them, they bail. So even though you feel that you've shared the gospel and there was an initial response, it didn't change their worldview. Does that make sense? The core message wasn't fully understood. And so we need to present the Bible as being something that's credible. And when we're talking about credibility, when we're talking about making our argument credible, most would think about apologetics or, um, you know what apologetics are? Apologetics are reasoned arguments to justify the gospel. And you know, a hundred years ago, you didn't have to do much of this because like I said, most people believed in like a kind of Christianity. Most people's lives were kind of Christian. And what, but, but nowadays, that's not the case, and we need to present the Bible as credible. And this is dense. We're only going to be here for a minute, but I think, I think we need to talk about this for a second. I want, I want us to hone in here. We need, to, we need to present the Bible as credible because of what's called defeater beliefs. And this is on the screen. What am I saying? Defeater belief. I want that to sink in. Defeater beliefs. Again, 100 years ago, there weren't many defeater beliefs. But a defeater belief is this. A defeater belief is a belief A that if believed makes belief B impossible. So I don't even have to look at it. I'm going to unpack this. In the old westernized Christian culture, there weren't many defeater beliefs around. Most people believed in the Bible. Most people believed in heaven. But now we live in a time when our culture has a set of common sense beliefs, defeater beliefs. Let me give you a couple examples. And hopefully now you're like, okay, that makes sense. The first, one, of the, one of the first defeater beliefs, a big one, is there can't just be one true religion. Second one, another one would be like, uh, everyone has got to be able to determine right and wrong for themselves. So how does this play out? If someone has belief A, that everybody has got to be able to determine right and wrong for themselves, if that's one of their belief A, then when you say that the Bible is true and it tells us what to believe, they won't accept that because they believe this. And so what we have to do is we have to, be, we have to be alert to what some of their defeater beliefs are. And we, ha- and we have to have a conversation about how that doesn't make sense. Because if we never address someone's defeater belief, then they're never, gonna, they're never going to consider Christianity as being something that's plausible. I know that's dense, but does that make sense? And these have become, these have become givens. They're things that people just say as though they're common sense, but they don't, they're not. And because they're believed, Christianity can't be true to them. And if, if you never wrestle, if you never deal with these things in your interactions with people, you'll be saying the gospel to people and they won't understand it. It will go in one ear and out the other. Keller says, even they will not know why nothing you're saying makes sense. It's because many people in our world have these defeater beliefs that, if true, make Christianity impossible for them to accept as credible. 
So what we have to do is we, try, we have to try to, to challenge those. And, and how do we do that? Well, that's a bigger conversation than what we're going to address this morning. Uh, we're getting into philosophy and apologetics and evangelism. Um, but but what I, what I, why I wanted to highlight this is because sin is something that's important to talk about because, because many churches are abandoning even talking about it. But I wanted to present this idea because I think most of us probably haven't thought about it much. Why won't people listen to me when I talk about God, right? Because they have beliefs that make God something that they can't accept. We need to make God and sin something very real for people or Jesus will never be real for them. If you tell people that all they need is a little more self-esteem and their problem isn't sin, then why would they need Jesus? We have to understand that we have to make sin very real. Because it is real. Because if, te- if all we tell people is you just need a little self-esteem, you just need a little more education, you just need a little more conditioning, then ultimately they can save themselves. But this is what a lot of churches are beginning to teach. So let's rewind, and we're almost done. For all of us, sin is our present pandemic. Sin has fractured everything that God originally created to be good. What can we do about it? Well, for some of you that aren't believers, you can do this today for the first time. Um, for those of you that maybe have followed Jesus in the past, but you've lost your way, what do we do about sin? The third, the final big idea for today is that faith, faith produces repentance. What are we talking about? Well, how are we saved? Well, the Bible teaches that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. What's faith in Jesus? Faith in Jesus is accepting that God is the starting point upon which everything else hinges. Faith is complete trust and confidence and in, 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 in Jesus is who he said he was, that, that he's the son of God, that he came to save us. And what does that faith produce? What does true faith, what does saving faith produce? It produces repentance. Repentance is an indicator of authentic faith. The Baker, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says that repentance, hear me, hear me here, this isn't on the screen, but repentance is a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. That's repentance. A change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. So let me ask you, does that that definition, does that define you? Does a life of repentance, does a life of constantly just, just God, I want to be more like you. I don't don't want to to worship me. I don't want to do the things I want. I want to do the things you want. I want to honor you. Does that define you? Does that define us? Let's read from our text, just just a, a little bit from our text in Revelation one more time. It says, But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent. The Ephesian church, over the course of those handful of decades, they, they quit repenting. They, they, became, they became those ah, terrible legalists and they started following rules. They, 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 you know, their following of God wasn't based on gratitude, but, but because they wanted to prove themselves. And, and this would have made them awful people to be around. And then there was probably some of them that started sinning blatantly and just calling it freedom in Christ. And they, and they quit repenting. They just did what they wanted to do and, 
and, and, you know, God will forgive them, right? They quit repenting. So the big idea here is if you want to live a life of joy and peace in the gospel, if you want to be found in who Jesus is and what he's done, if you desire to experience this deep gospel rest that we're talking about, your life will be marked by ongoing, genuine repentance to God and to other believers. Because, friends, we have to deal with our sin problem. We can't keep believing the lie that whatever works for me is true. That thinking will rot our souls. The truth about who God is is found in the Bible, and we must respond to the Bible by submitting our lives to who Him, to, submitting our lives to Him, and we know that by reading the Word, by reading the Bible. We must turn from our sins and turn to Christ. Pastor Tullian Tavigian, he writes, We no longer need to rely on the position, the prosperity, the promotions, uh, the power, the praise, the passing pleasures, or the popularity that we've so desperately been pursuing for so long. All the care and love and value we most crave. Full and final approval we already have in Jesus. Once we put our faith in Jesus and repent of our sins, this becomes our reality. He goes on, Christian growth, in other words, doesn't happen by first behaving better, but by believing better. Believing is bigger, deeper, brighter ways that Christ has already secured for sinners. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Why? You can confess and repent because you don't have to be seen as perfect because Jesus was perfect. You can confess and repent because you don't have to be seen as this, as this you know, perfect person trying to measure up. God has already done that for you. Jesus has already done that for you. You can confess and repent by, by, you know, while you're relying on Jesus to make you more like him moment by moment. And so our lives are to be a response to his goodness. Our lives aren't to be, you know, us trying to earn our keep and make our way. We, 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 we obey based on gratitude that he loved us first. You can live confident and free knowing that Jesus accomplished all that was needed on the cross when he was tortured and killed to pay for your sins. Last quote from Tullian, this freedom Jesus secured for me is not freedom from pain and suffering. Rather, it's freedom in pain and suffering. Life's tough. Life gets busy. Life is toilsome. Why? Because of sin. I hope we've done somewhat of a good job of explaining that briefly this morning. Being a Christian doesn't remove all of that stuff. Being a Christian means that in the midst of the toil, we have a deep joy and peace, knowing that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 Sin is real, and sin has fractured everything. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. There's hope in Jesus. So I encourage you this morning to reflect deeply in our time of communion and singing and giving. Reflect on, on your sins. Reflect on your struggles. Reflect on your selfishness. Reflect on your walk with the Lord. Reflect on what that looks like. And repent to God and repent to others. James 5.16 says, I conf confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent your sins to Jesus. If you need prayer this morning, I would love to pray with you. There's going to be, you know, myself and others will be in the back of the room right after this to pray with you. 
And so let's heed God's warning to the, to the church at Ephesus and come back to our first love. Let's repent of our sins and surrender our lives to Jesus. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, I pray that maybe for the first time in a long time, um, the impact of sin in our lives, maybe we've, we've just neglected so many aspects of our heart and, and the decisions we make, and really we're just living in blatant sin. I pray that that would become a reality to us, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't destroy us. I pray that, that that truth would be revealed to us, coupled with the reality that, that you're beckoning us to yourself. And my prayer is that, is that we, would, we would put our faith in you, that we would confess our sins, we'd repent of our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So God, I just pray that we would confess, we would repent, and that we, we would look to you. I pray that we'd be a church marked not by a bunch of individuals trying to prove themselves as being this, these perfect people, but that we would be very honest about our hypocrisies and our struggles and our difficulties and, and that sort of thing, and that we would, we would give you the glory because you're the good one, not us. And so this morning as we pray, as we as we go to the table and, and take communion and we, we remember your body broken and your blood shed, that Lord, we would do so reverently, that we wouldn't do that if we're not following you. And I pray that many of us would, would make conscious decisions this morning to, to pursue you. We put our hope in you. We put our hope in so many other things and it hasn't worked out. I pray that we put our hope in you that we commit to a community of faith that, that can hold us accountable, that can walk with us in, in, our, in our faith walk and our struggles. And so we love you. Amen.